fusion small group, and uh, I, first and second graders, and I, I know that because one of them is my daughter, so that, that helps a little bit, but um, the uh, prize for selfie of the week is nothing except, like Matt had said, the knowledge of knowing that you are one of three winners. And so um, thank you again for all of your participation in this uh, extra way to just remember what we're talking about at church on Sunday. As I was thinking about this series, and you could go to the next slide, too. As I was thinking about this series um, this past week, I had a thought that came to mind, and I thought, if, if I were you sitting in the rows during this series, that I would think, wow, I'm really lucky to be a part of this church, that I'm really blessed to be at church every week. Now, if you think that's kind of uh, arrogant and prideful on my part, um, let me explain what I mean. So normally when you go to church, what you are expecting to hear is about Jesus, about the Bible, and about your faith and the growing faith, and, and through God's word, all that's been happening. So that need, that desire has been met, God willing. But at the very same time, you all have received something else in this series just free of charge. Like, we didn't ask for extra offerings for this. It just, we're just giving you things. And that is that you also are going away with more knowledge about digital photography and words that you've never heard before, especially if you're a baby boomer, okay? So some of these you have heard, some of these maybe you haven't, but uh, we've learned about selfie, we've learned about filter, we've learned about what it means a photobomb. I've learned from Pastor Matt the hashtag no filter. And I mean, think about this. You've gotten help in your photography. You've gotten God's word. You guys are lucky. In fact, this week, you can go to your Thanksgiving you know, meal gathering and just start using these techie words and your nephews and nieces are going to be amazed at all that you know, okay? But seriously, we do want to take a look at two more um, words that are actually related so that then we can talk about God's word. So the word that I want to bring up is the word pixel. So that's a photography word, digital photography word. And I looked in Wikipedia and there's like a three paragraph um, definition. I didn't realize pixel is that hard to define. But I'm going to give you the layman's term of definition of pixel. Basically, it's a small part of a picture. And you put all the pixels together and then you have an image. Now, sometimes what happens with digital photography is if on your computer you try to blow up a picture larger than what the resolution should be, we've all done this probably, you find that the picture looks a little bit like this. And so what you're seeing are pixels. Each of those squares, each of those uh, cubes or whatever are a pixel. And so a picture that's been blown up so that it's fuzzy or that it's cloudy, we might use the word that it's been pixelated. It's a pixelated photo. So here's what I want you to remember about the theme, okay? That what we're talking about in layman's terms is something fuzzy something cloudy. It's pixelated, okay? And maybe all of you have at one time or another have had a picture of yourself that's been pixelated. Here's what I know for sure, that you've had times 
in your life that you would call pixelated, that have been a little fuzzy, a little bit cloudy. Maybe it's big things like, um, I'm not sure whether I should take that job, or I'm not sure whether we should move. And, and you don't know the future, so things are a little cloudy. Maybe it's very minor things, like you can't decide where to eat or something for supper, okay? So we have these fuzzy situations, these pixelated, cloudy situations, especially as we think of the future. We don't always know, we never know what's really for sure going to happen, right? Uh, about our earthly future, at least. But today, even though we have all these times of fuzziness, we're going to hone in on one specific time of life that I know we all face, whether you're really young or really old, time of pixelation or a pixelated time. It's times when you have a decision to make and you're tempted to do the fun thing instead of the godly thing to do what feels good instead of what is good, to do what pleases me instead of what pleases God. And when you look back on those moments of temptation, usually it's not cloudy anymore, right, when you look back on it. But in the moment, in the time of temptation, something happens up here and in here, and things get really cloudy in the moment. Now, again, I said this is true for everyone, whether you're young or old. So let me give you some examples. There's millions of examples of situations like I'm talking about, but here's just a few to get the wheels turning. So for you young people, for you, ki- your, you kids, in school, here's an example. So you are left with this decision that you could either cheat or plagiarize off the internet and be assured to get an A, or the flip side would be that to do the hard work of doing it yourself and risk maybe getting a C. And the situation becomes fuzzy in the moment. Even though you know what you should do, it becomes pixelated. Or maybe with with career or jobs, guys and gals, older people. Um, So you could, on the one hand, do what everyone else is doing in the culture of that business. Maybe even that means making um, worldly priorities instead of godly priorities, right? To climb the corporate ladder. Or you stick to what is right and true. You stick to what God has directed you to and then just let the chips fall where they may. And be content, but you're not going to compromise your priorities or your morals. Could happen in relationships. Could happen in pre-marriage relationships where you get into that situation of doing what's godly or doing what's not. It could happen in marriages themselves. Um, Get into a situation maybe where when a relationship is struggling, we could be tempted to decide, I'm just going to give up. I'm not going to get divorced, but I'm not going to put the work into it that it means or needs to to make this relationship better. Or, on the flip side, we could decide, I am going to put myself out there, and I'm going to do what God has called me to do, and I'm going to be the best husband or wife that I can be with God's help. All right? Pixelated. Maybe the last one is just this pixelation that goes on inside when life isn't the way you want it to be from an earthly perspective. And we are tempted to get up 
every day and be crabby and disappointed. Now, that's a choice. And there's, you're tempted to do that, but on the flip side, we could get up, and maybe not everything's the way that we want it, but that we could live in the grace, love, joy, and peace that comes from knowing who we are. And we're not going to get it right every day. I mean, I wake up crabby. Not very often, right? No. More than you'd expect, okay? It's so it's still going to happen. But we have these times. We look back on it. Why did I act that way? Why did I make that decision? But in the moment, things are pixelated, fuzzy. And that's our first fill-in. Temptation pixelates our decision-making. It's temptation to sin that oftentimes makes very obvious choices pixelated or fuzzy. And as I mentioned earlier, we are not going to be able to find truth from God's word that's going to take away all of our temptations. I wish it were the case. It's going to happen in heaven, but we can't take away all the temptation. I mean, even if you get rid of the TV, right, you still are left with your mind, and your mind leads us to sin. Our mind is filled with a sinful nature that leads us to, to sin and, and to make wrong or bad choices. So we can't get rid of temptation, but here's my goal today that through God's word, what I would like you to come away with today is a framework of how to best or better fight temptation when you recognize it's knocking at your door. A framework to better fight it, whether you, again, are young or old. And to do that, we're going to turn to um, a man named Joseph. Now, many of you know there are two um, primary Josephs in the Bible. Um, one Joseph you hear a lot about at the time, at Christmas time. It was Joseph who was the husband of... Good, very good. And Mary was the mother of... Good. That's, that's not the Joseph we're talking about today. The other Joseph, he lived 2,000 years before Jesus was born, about a little earlier than 2,000 years, but approximately 2,000 years before Jesus. And this Joseph was the son of a man named Jacob, okay? And he was, Joseph, one of 12 brothers, one of 12 sons of Jacob. Now, some of you might remember that Joseph was not just one of the sons. He was Jacob's favorite son, right? And you are probably familiar with an account of an event that happened that really showed that favoritism where, uh, you know, Jacob only got one person a gift, not all the boys a gift, just one, and it was that coat of many colors. And, and so instead, though, of the brothers getting mad at their dad, they took out their frustration and anger on Joseph, on the brother. Now, when Joseph was in his late teens, there was an, a day where Jacob, the dad, sent Joseph out to go check on 10 of the brothers. They were out doing the family business, uh, watching sheep, taking care of sheep. And, and as he was coming, the 10 brothers who were there saw Joseph on the horizon, and they started talking to each other, and they're like, all right. Jacob, our dad's not around. What could we do to our brother? And let me just tell you, they didn't say things like, you know what we could do? We could give him a noogie. 
Or, you know what we could do? We could, you know, take away his favorite coat. Or, or we could maybe, on the flip side, shower him with love and forgive him, even though it wasn't really his fault. That's not what they talked about. You know what their two options were? This shows you the dysfunction in their family, okay? Their two options were, we could either kill him, or we could be nice and we could sell him into slavery. Now just think about that. Things in your family have to be pretty bad if the two options for your brother is kill him or sell him, right? And things were pretty bad in this family, and especially amongst those brothers. So you may not know this, but the ten brothers, they were very compassionate people. And so they didn't kill him. They just sold him into slavery. Likely, in their mind, never to see him again. So Joseph became a slave, anyone know, in the country of Egypt. And his master, the guy who bought him, was a very highfalutin Egyptian official. His name was Potiphar. And that's where things pick up in Genesis chapter 39. We're going to read first through the, the first six verses. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, he was the captain of the guard, we, we think likely like the, the leader of the, the bodyguards of Pharaoh. F Potiphar bought Joseph from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When Potiphar saw that the Lord was with Joseph and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in Potiphar's eyes and became his attendant. So he kind of moved up the ranks a little bit. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything that Potiphar owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left both, or he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except for the food that he ate. Now, already, before we get to the, the crux of our text today, we begin to see some things about who Joseph is. What do I mean by that? Well, do you realize how much Joseph's life has been turned upside down? I mean, think about it. He, he was the favorite son of a very wealthy guy. His future looked to be made, earthly speaking. And then in a day's, in a moment, his life has been turned around so that he is no longer treated like a favorite son, but he's a slave. He's a possession. Now, when your life gets turned upside down from where you thought it would be going, how do we react? I've seen often there are two ways. One is sometimes that struggle brings people closer to God. But usually before that happens, not all the time, but usually many times it brings people away from God. There's an anger there, a frustration there, a temptation to sort of give up. Notice Joseph here. <laughs> he just does what he's supposed to do. And then I want to give you this encouragement that even though Joseph's life turned upside down, and, and many of you know 
that the story, the account would end with Joseph being the the, the second most powerful guy in Egypt, when Joseph was in slavery in Potiphar's house, he had no idea about that. For what he knew, he'd be a slave the rest of his life. Yet notice who was with him. God. God never left him. And, and Joseph lived in a way that reflected that. That even in his most difficult hardship, harder than anything you face, be a slave. In his most difficult hardship, he knew God was there. Well, about 10 years or so, historians think, it's around 8 to 10 years, Joseph um, had something else that happened in Potiphar's house. And this is what we're going to sort of dwell on for the rest of our time here together. It's in verse 6. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. Um, You know, same could be said about the guys here. So kind of similar, you can relate, right? And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. Now, I don't think this verse probably needs a lot of explanation, right? Suffice it to say, uh, Potiphar's wife was not looking for just a snuggle buddy on a cold Egyptian night, okay? And now it's decision-making time, a time of temptation, Joseph's not married. He's not married to Potiphar's wife. What does he do? Now, (laughs) you're thinking, it's obvious. How is this fuzzy? You're right. When you look back on it. But if you're thinking that in the moment, this wasn't cloudy for him, that this wasn't hard for him, then you're not really being honest with the account. Think about it. Some of the most alluring and dangerous temptations that still are true for all of us today, the area that is most tempting is in the area of sexuality, right? Especially in the moment. If you don't believe that, then... How do we explain how pornography is an epidemic in our culture and society and world? And we know that sexual sins and like pornography, we know how it damages ourselves and we know that it damages relationships. And yet, statistics say that there are many, many, many people that still view and use it. Why? Because in the moment, things get fuzzy. When you're not at church, reading about someone else, it's easy. When you're in the moment, things get cloudy. Now, there's something else that's going on, not just that it was a sexual type sin, but think about Joseph's situation. So like he has a choice between two things, and neither of them likely are going to turn out good from an earthly perspective. So if he says no to Potiphar's wife, Who's upset with him? Potiphar's wife, right? And she has the position and, in some ways, the the power to make Joseph's life very difficult. Maybe to strip him of his high position in that home, and that's actually what happened, okay? If he says yes to Potiphar's wife, who will likely be mad at him? Because guess what? 
These things never stay secret forever. Eventually, TMZ finds out, and it's everywhere, right? I mean, these things don't stay secret forever. And when that's found out, Potiphar is going to be upset at Joseph. And now Joseph's lost his position as slave in that way as well. See how fuzzy it is? See how pixelated? If you just want to come at it from earthly terms, just purely earthly terms, what does Joseph do? It's tough. No. Sometimes it's tough for us too. But the reason is because we come at it purely from earthly terms. We are great at thinking up reasons to justify doing things that we know are not good. You know how I know that? Because I do it. And it can be as little as, little as you know, giving too much time to work than family, or it can be big things like Joseph faced, but we are experts, we're pros at convincing ourselves that it's okay. And our next fill-in helps us with that, or is just an acknowledgement of that, that we can come up with good, in, parent, in quotations, we can always come up with good reasons to sin, good in our mind, good to convince us, uh, quotes because it's, they're not really good. We can all come up with good reasons to do what we know is wrong. So, what does Joseph do in this pixelated situation? Well, verse 8. He refused. He said no. Why? <laughs> maybe, maybe Potiphar's wife wasn't very good looking and he wasn't attracted to her. That could be the case. But that's not the reason. You know, maybe Joseph was thinking about his slave career, and he put out a pros and cons list of how he could stay at the top of his slave career, and it, the pros and cons list said, say no to Potiphar's wife, because you're, you're going to be for sure in trouble if you say yes to her, and it's going to be bad for my career. It might have been true. It's not the reason. You know how I know that? The Bible tells us the reason. Look at the rest of the verses of why he refused. Joseph refused, and he continued, With me in charge, he told her, My master doesn't concern himself with anything in the house. Everything Potiphar owns, he's entrusted to my care. You know, he, he starts to think about the blessings that God has given to him. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master, my master has withheld nothing from me except you, and then just kind of like a little reminder, because you are his wife, remember? Then the next verse, the key one. Joseph's words. How then can I do such a wicked thing? Not sin against Potiphar, but sin against God. And though she spoke to Joseph, Lots. Day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. In the moment when a quick 
and hasty decision could have been made, Joseph stopped. He thought about the bigger picture. And at the heart of the bigger picture, what he thought about is who he was and what God had done for him. And at the very heart of who he was, was not favorite son of Jacob. Who he was was not slave, was not like chief slave. Who he was, the identity he went back to, was not that he was well-built and handsome. He went back to the fact that he was saved. Now, you got to understand, when Joseph lived, Jesus had not come yet. He hadn't died on the cross. He hadn't risen from the dead. Joseph didn't have that knowledge of what Jesus has already done. What he knew was that God had promised for there to be a Savior. And he knew that because his dad Jacob had told him. And Jacob's dad Isaac told him. And, and Isaac's dad Abraham told him that, that God had promised that from Abraham's line a Savior would someday come. And even though Jesus had not been born yet, Joseph lived in the grace and the truth of what his identity is through the forgiveness, sacrifice, and resurrection of that coming Savior. And for him, in that moment of temptation, as he reflected on God, it made all the difference in the world. Your identity, and I pray if there's only one thing you take away from this series, is who you are. I want you to remember it. I want you to carry it around with you. I want you to roll all in it, who you are. You are a child of God. And yes, you might have a job, but that's not what defines you. And yes, you might be the child of your parents, but that's not what defines you. And yes, you are well-built and handsome, but that is not what defines you, what defines you and me is what Jesus Christ has done for us and who he's made us through faith in that sacrifice. Now, I could stop there, but I won't. Because there is one other thing that I, I want to point out about this framework of what to think about when it comes to times of temptation. And, and to do that, I, I want to just make you aware that sometimes we get into situations where we don't always recognize what's really going on. And if we knew what was really going on, it would make a difference in how we reacted to a situation. It made me think about a commercial that came out about a year, year and a half ago. It featured as a Pepsi commercial, and it featured uh, Jeff Gordon, who's a NASCAR driver, a race car driver. And what Jeff Gordon did for this commercial was that he dressed up like just an average guy who drove a minivan, and he went to a used car dealership to test drive a Camaro. I want to show you what happened when the salesman didn't know what was really going on. Hey, Mike. Dave, nice to meet you, Mike. I saw you sort of gravitated towards the Camaro. Turn up a little, Tracy. Am I getting one? Oh, no, no, no. This this way too much car for me. I'm Well, it's a lot of power, but... They've designed it to be very safe. I don't know if I can handle it. I, I've never driven anything like this before. Well, I, I tell you what, I think a way to really make you feel comfortable would be to put you behind the wheel. You're good. 
What are you driving now? Oh, just a minivan. Oh, yeah. yeah what am I You're signing not here? You not, sure? just, it's just a checkout sheet for a test drive. You're not obligated to anything. It's just so we know who's out. Let's go give it a drive. I'm getting a little nervous. No, I'll be right there beside you. There are your keys, sir. Thank you, Steve. But you'll have to unlock it, Mike. Oh, yeah. thank you. There we go. Oh, yeah. What a car. Mm -hmm. Well, we better buckle up. Yeah, good call. Power. Power door locks. Standard, of course. You are liable for any damages to the vehicle, so please stop the car. Slow, or at least slow down. Slow down. Slow down. You can't go through that gate, Mike. Stop! 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 And uh, Jeff Gordon has some more fun with this unsuspecting used car salesman. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that happening? We'd be freaked out, right? Just like he was. Now, it would help to know that the driver didn't just drive a minivan, that he drove race cars. I still would be holding on for my life, but it would help right? But when you don't know what's really going on, you don't always act or react the way you would if you did. Agree? When temptation comes, I think it's important for us to realize what's really going on. Paul kind of outlines that for us in Ephesians 6. He writes that our struggle in life is not against flesh and blood. It's not against your husband. It's not against your wife. It's not against North Korea or, or you know, ISIS. But our struggles against rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You see, even though Jesus has already won the victory for you, and that your place in heaven is as good as being there, at the same time, there is a battle that we fight here every single day until heaven against temptation. And you know what the devil's trying to do through that? Temptation is really the devil's opportunity, his desire to drive a wedge between you and your heavenly father. Because sin always drives a wedge between us and our relationship with God. Now, most of the time when people stray or, or even go out of faith, I very rarely see it being something that just happened overnight. You know how it usually happens? It has to do with temptation. And so slowly over time, they make a decision that they know isn't godly, and then they become to feel comfortable with it, and, and, and they forget, and, and they've taken a step away. And then another one, and then another one. And we've all taken these steps, right? But if we take them for too long, at some point we wake up and we're like, holy smokes, <laughs> I'm not where I need to be or where I want to be. And yes, God's grace covers all our sin, no doubt, but... Temptation is the devil's opportunity to drive us away, to drive a wedge. So we do not need to be afraid, but we need to be aware. And that's our next fill-in.
be aware in times of temptation of what's really going on. It's not just a desire for something a little better or a job that's a little better. Really what it is, if, it, if what we're choosing is not godly, if it's sin, what's really going on is that there's a spiritual battle going on. Jeff Gordon's driving a minivan or the, the Camaro and we have no idea, right? Something's going on. Sin is going on. The devil's at work and how important it is to, to know that. So at, at the beginning of this message, I, I made mention that we're not going to be able to take away temptation until heaven, which is, honestly, I've said this before, what I look forward to most about heaven is not having to battle sinful nature anymore. But God does, through Joseph, give us a framework of how we can fight temptation. And it starts with understanding that when temptation comes, our last villain, we should stop. Don't do anything. Don't make any decision. And maybe you stop for five seconds. Maybe you stop for a year. Whatever it is, it depends on the temptation. But just stop, okay? And then think. And set your mind on things above. That, that's not my encouragement. That's Paul's. Colossians chapter 3, he writes, Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. So we stop. And you ask yourself the question. I know I shouldn't do this. What's really going on here? It's the devil trying to drive a wedge between me and God. And then you set your mind on earthly things. You think, who am I? Who has Christ made me? Sometimes we'll fail. Sometimes we'll sin. Yet, mindful of who we are, God gives us the power to say no to sin more. Just like Joseph. Joseph.